Welcome to another episode of Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On this episode, I have not one, but two guests. Yes, it's a double feature, and the connection between these two guests, they're both working on the same comic book. First off, I speak with New York Times bestselling writer, Brian Bucciolato. Brian is the writer and colorist of Cannibal, published by Image Comics. I'll also chat with Brian about his work for DC on the title, Injustice, Gods Among Us. Jennifer Young actually is the creator and co-writer of Cannibal, and I hope to have her on the show along with Brian, but due to a last-minute scheduling conflict, Jennifer is not able to join us for the show. However, I do want to give Jennifer a shout-out and a thank you and credit for her creation of and working on Cannibal. Now, immediately following my interview with Brian on this podcast, I speak with Mateus Baguera. He's the artist on Cannibal. I also talked to Mateus about his work for Boom Studios and his work for DC Comics. Cannibal Volume 1 is being published by Image Comics and is a trade collection of issues 1 through 4. It goes on sale March 8th. So let's kick off this giant-sized episode with my conversation with Brian Bucciolato. Besides talking about Cannibal and Injustice Gods Among Us, I also talked to Brian about his writing style, horror movies, and the joy of reading comic books. And then immediately following that is my conversation with Mateus Baguera, not only about his work, but about his artistic training, influences, all this and more, here now on Creator Talks. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me for Creator Talks. How you doing? I'm doing great and uh, excited to see that Cannibal is coming out as a trade paperback next week. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> that is uh, going to be March 8th. Um, I know that fans of The Walking Dead and horror in general are going to really enjoy something like Cannibal. Why don't you, in your own words, just give me the pitch for Cannibal? Sure. I mean, Cannibal is about a small town uh, in uh, sort of Everglades, Florida, that is dealing with this uh, virus that uh, it's kind of a messed up virus where if you are, uh, if you have it, it makes you crave human flesh. Uh, you're not a zombie, you're a regular person, but you're sort of overwhelmed with this uh, lust to eat humans. And uh, at some point, uh, almost like an addiction, uh, you lose control and you eat humans, and uh, then feel really bad about it afterwards. So it's about a, it's a, about a town and a family dealing uh, with this sort of new world reality. But you don't lose your humanity, though. I mean, if you have the virus, you're fully aware of what you're doing, and you have right. remorse and guilt afterwards of having done it. Yeah, 100%. You're not a zombie on any level. You're a human being with a really unfortunate uh, virus. It's sort of a metaphor for um, sort of sexually transmitted diseases and the over-medicalization of society and uh, just a lot of uh, different things that uh, we tackle in today's world. Yeah, I've heard it compared to The Walking Dead. Do you get tired of those comparisons? Because it really isn't. I mean, other than the fact that it's very character-driven, it's not on the same level at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's a bit of a lazy comparison. To be honest, mm-hmm. um, I almost feel like it's it's closer to Bloodline uh, or um, um, even True Romance. I mean, True uh, True Blood. Uh, I think it's closer to those two than it is Walking Dead. I mean, it's not apocalyptic. There's no zombies. 
Um, you know, there's no sort of faceless monster that's after you. It's really about people interacting and making really hard choices. Like, what would you do if your loved one had the virus? You know, would you help them feed? Would you disown them? Would you want to get away from them? Would you want to kill them? I mean, there, there are a lot of hard choices that the characters uh, and the community have to make uh, because this is a reality. And so I don't think it's anything uh, like Walking Dead. I do love Walking Dead. I think it's a, it's a great comic. It's a great show. Um, but I think this is different. Very much so. I mean, some of the townspeople, they have family members that uh, do have the virus and they try to protect them and help them find food. And others in the town of uh, Willow just want to go out and find them and eradicate them. Yeah. So um, that's kind of the world they live in. And Sheriff Mays, who's a character in the book, basically just doesn't get in anyone's way who wants to do that, who wants to eradicate them. He doesn't condone it, but he's not going to stop it. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of in a tough spot and he does have his own agendas. So, um, you know, we really, you know, Jennifer, who is not here, unfortunately, because, uh, you know, she just got involved in something and she wasn't able to make this podcast. Uh, it was her original idea. Like she's had this idea for a long time. And so it was important for her to uh, really uh, make this a grounded um, horror that was about people and about characters uh, and about about life. So it's not horror in like a gory, you know, slasher blood and guts way. Uh, it's more of a foreboding sort of get under your skin, suspenseful type of horror. Yeah, I mean there is some blood and guts and gore, but not an excessive amount. It's not the focus of the story. It's not the central point. Um, and one of the things I found about it is um, if you took out that aspect of the virus and the cannibalism, there's still a very intense uh, character-driven story beneath that. You know, not, I mean, it makes it something special to have that being part of it. But even if you take that out, there's a, a really great story there already. I'm glad you think that because, you know, to me, that's the mark of uh, of a good story is that if you could remove the genre element and still be interested, then I feel like you're doing something right. You know, and, um, you know, it's described in Images Solicits as an anti-apocalypse story. And we know right now there's a bunch of apocalyptic stories out there. Um, and some are really good. I enjoy a lot of them. Um, and it's, it's become a genre in and of itself. Um, but why do you describe this as an anti-apocalypse story? Jen's the one who coined that phrase. Uh, I think for her it was important that uh, humanity uh, doesn't give up and doesn't go gently into that good night. So for her, uh, it was a way of saying that, uh, you know, people aren't going to give up their daily routines, you know. Uh, just like with SARS or with, you know, even, uh, you know, a terrible disease like AIDS, like people aren't going to just suddenly, you know, change the way they do things and give up. I mean, they'll carry a, like if there's a cannibal virus and, and you're worried about people eating you, what are you going to do? You're going to carry a gun. You're going to be more suspicious of others, but you're going to go to work and you're going to go to the movies and you're going to go do your normal daily activities because humans are stubborn and, uh, they've got more fight in them than to just let something like a, you know, a virus keep them from uh, their status quo. So I think that's what she means by that. Something else too. Um, the the background of this virus of these uh, mosquitoes that were uh, because of a storm awoken that were dormant. Um, that doesn't take place within the pages of the comic book. That's just like the setup to the story. So you don't really don't spend any time on that at all. Uh, you just kind of lay the groundwork very quickly at the beginning of the book, but it doesn't take up any of the actual 
sequential art. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we really wanted to tell a story about this community in Everglades, Florida, which is, you know, an interesting backdrop with, and we all know lots of crazy things go on in Florida. Uh, you know, it's an open carry state. Um, you know, there's strange, you know, you know, there's alligators everywhere. There's, you know, it's a, you know, there's a lot of weird mixture between small communities, uh, bigger cities and like this untamed, you know, swampland. So, uh, we felt it was really ripe for uh, storytelling and I didn't really want to waste time setting up, um, you know, the virus, uh, coming into the world and how everyone reacts. Like we want to just plop you right into the middle of a world that, you know, this is the status quo. And while, you know, it's still pretty new to people, um, it's still out there and they know about it. Now, Jen grew up in that area. Is that why it's set in the Everglades? I mean, it's a creepy area in some places, the swampland, but is that one of the reasons why was she that familiar with the area and with the people that it would made for a much more rich and deeper story? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in New York, so, you know, uh, the only alligators I ever heard of were, you know, in the sewer system. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, she definitely, you know, she knows it well. She, you know, lived her childhood in Florida, calls it home. Uh, and so, you know, she definitely wanted, you know, you write what you know, right? So uh, it was an easy choice uh, for to set it in Florida. One of the things I really like about the story and it's a hallmark of a very well-written story. It pulls me in because my connection to the community, it's not just a group of people that I'm observing, but there's a link, an emotional connection to the story through the Hanson family, their relationship and, and Cash's relationship to his girlfriend, Candy. All of that makes it very more, much more um, personal. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, they're, they're also, they're flawed people. Like, you know, when, you know, bad things happen... Cash doesn't react well, and we see sort of the the flawed, you know, his flawed way of dealing with things. Like I don't want to give away spoilers, mm -hmm. but you know he, you know, he doesn't necessarily do the right thing. You know, he he reacts emotionally, and there are consequences. Um, but you know, we feel like he acts authentically to how you know somebody in his position might act. Now, Jen conceived of this a while back. Um... And she had worked with you as editor on Sons of the Devil, I believe? Correct. So when did she first come up with the idea? She was in college. I think it's, this idea is probably five to seven years old. And, and yeah. apparently, you know, it took many different forms. It was prose. It was poems. Um, you know, she, you know, we do have aspirations of hopefully, you know, one day having it come to life in film and television. Um, it, you know... It's taken many forms, and there have been many different characters uh, throughout her sort of developing this world. When did she first decide to approach you about it and say, hey, let's try to make this into a, a comic book. Let's, let's approach it from that angle. Um, I, I think it was the other way around. I okay. mean, uh, we, uh, you know, we, I was working, we were working on Sons of the Devil, and I wanted to do you know, a, another um, image book. Uh, you know, I mean, I enjoy creating new worlds and, you know, uh, the creator owned model through image is amazing. So uh, I wanted to do something new and I knew she was really passionate about it and she wanted to sort of, you know, uh, start writing. So I was like, let's do cannibal. You know, I mean, I, she had told me about the story before and I thought it was a great concept and I was like, let's just do that one. And so we just sort of, you know, threw caution to the wind and, uh, 
uh, were able to find a great artist. Mateus, I think, is amazing. Um, he was recommended to me uh, by a friend who thought he would be good as a backup artist for Sons of the Devil. Um, and of course, we don't, you know, we didn't need a backup artist, but um, uh, his samples really stuck with me. So when we knew we were going to do Cannibal, we immediately reached out to him, uh, and uh, you know, we were thankful that he agreed to jump on board. So do you work with him uh, through Skype or through email? I mean, how does that go about the process of, since he's not in the U.S., how are you guys communicate back and forth? I mean, he's a pro, so it's mm-hmm. just emails. You know, emails, uh, we send a lot of visual reference. Um, I think he's really fast and great about sort of implementing, you know, whatever changes that we have or, you know, uh, asking for clarification when necessary. Um, you know, you can tell a pro uh, a pro artist because you know they have this ability to translate the words and and breathe life into it that you didn't even you know exceeds your expectations. Uh, um, he's a great storyteller. I love how he spots blacks, uh, and uh, you know I think we couldn't be happier with him. Yeah, he definitely has the look and feel of the Florida swamps down. I mean, I've... and that's just him using photo reference. I don't know if oh, he's ever. Wow ever been there you know like mm-hmm. you know we send photos and and he you know i don't know what research he does on his own but uh yeah he just he's good now you once said in an interview that uh this was your chance to address the stigma of disease and addiction through a horror story uh was that based on you know, anyone that you knew or any personal experience not your own but just people that you know that have faced some of those horrors of being stigmatized because of a disease um, not me personally. I know that's part of uh, uh, Jen's backstory, and maybe you know, following up with Jen, she can speak to that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, there are some elements from her past that uh, uh, probably uh, that she's pulling from. Uh, for me, it was more just on on uh, a macro sort of thematic level. Um, oftentimes, you know, when I write, you know, I like to explore something, you know, uh, and it's always about obviously the human condition, but like what aspect of it. And so, uh, when she pitched me the idea, it was something that I responded to. Um, and which is why, you know, I was like, let's do it. So, I mean, you know, I mean, writing is, I mean, you know, not to sound all artsy fartsy, but you know, it's a creative endeavor. And so you sort of need to be inspired by, by things. And, uh, I think in this, you know, in this concept, uh, th- there were places we could go that were uh, full of inspiration and, and sort of meat for a story. Sure. It's like what you said earlier. It's like you write what you know about. So if you have some experience, even if it's not direct, it makes sense to write about something like that that you know well. So it has more depth and dimension to it. Absolutely. Now, your initial plan, I think, was to do like 12, 16 issues or so, not just a you know four-part series. Um, so, so far, so good. It's going well. Um, when is the next issue going to be out, issue number five? Okay, so March is when uh, the trade comes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have a, a month off, and then we're back, uh, I guess, uh, March, April, May. And do you have it plotted out in your mind, you and Jen, through issue like 12 or 16? Or have you, do you have more of a master plan that goes a little further than that? Um, well, I think the the story involving you know sort of the specific things that are set up in volume one uh, will take us uh, twelve issues, so three trades, uh, twelve issues, and then you know as we get closer to that third trade, uh, you know being finished, we'll evaluate um, where we're going to go from there. I mean, the thing the thing is, you know, as much as I love create you know creator owned comics and even Image, which is sort of the you know Mercedes Benz of creator owned comics. 
there is a reality to you know the industry and uh, the attrition rate of uh, most comics, you know, I mean, unless you're like a Brian K. Vaughn or, you know, you're doing, you know, Saga, Saga or, you know, uh, Southern Bastards or, I guess, Monstrous. There, there's a few titles that, uh, you know, sort of maintain these high levels. Um, but for most of us, it's hard to keep going because the numbers just, you know, uh, they degrade over time. And it's it's really not it's not saying anything about the story so much as the state of the industry yeah i was going to ask you about that because i see that a lot i look at the numbers and they're they're degrading over time it's very rare when a a series picks up in the middle and that's usually because of a a change if it's an ongoing character let's say you know wolverine or spider-man and there's a new team thrown at it to write and draw it but uh, for just about any property any title they tend to drop off and i i'm not sure what's causing that is it just like there's too much out there for people to to focus on or they get distracted with other books or I mean, I have my. I mean, I have my opinion, uh, and and really, what it is is you're talking about an industry where I don't know however many hundred comic book shops there are in the country. They dictate the sales numbers because they speculate how many they can sell. Um, they have to order a book three months in advance, and so they're bas- they're basically guessing how many copies they're going to sell in their store, and and then they adjust accordingly. Now. Um, we know that comic buyers uh, are are basically more passionate about number one issues, whether it's that, you know, I want to get that number one in hopes that one day it'll be worth something or I don't know. There's something romantic and sort of enticing about a number one. So number ones always sell better. And a lot of times they sell twice as good as number two. Um, and that's true, you know, across the board. So, uh, you know, if you're looking at Joe store owner, let's say he has five hundred dollars a month to buy comics, where is he going to put his money? He's going to put them in Marvel and DC, the books that he knows that he can sell, and then he's going to speculate on the number ones. So if you're writing issue eight and there are two new two new number ones coming out from Image, you know, that money's got to come from somewhere. So, you know, they allocate their funds based on, you know, how they feel like they can best sell something. And oftentimes, you know, the ongoing... Uh, creator-owned book gets squeezed as a result. Sure. Yeah, I see that too in the stores. It's it's kind of frustrating because it seems like people are still putting a lot of their money into the big two, which is fine. I mean, there's some great titles there and obviously some great writers and artists. But this, the, uh, the smaller publications that have a smaller run, they don't seem to get the same amount of... Uh, of opportunity to sell because they only get so many copies in. I mean, the the store owner is speculating on how many they should buy so they don't over order. But sometimes I go in and they're out. I mean, one thing that stores try to try to sort of uh, instill in their customers is you know the pull list, the pull list. You know, like like order your comics in advance because that's the surest way to know that that comic will be available for you. Um, but you know, not not everyone does that, and so you know comic shop owners have to cover their ass pretty much um you don't know how many times at at comic conventions i'll hear like yeah i bought your first three issues and then my store stopped carrying it and it's like you know okay well it's unfortunate for me (laughs) (laughs) um but they didn't order ahead they just kind of try to hope it would be there on the rack yeah i mean look yeah if, if wolverine number one's coming out you know and you know you're gonna sell 200 copies of it but you you know you can't float you know enough you know, money to cover those extra 200 copies in addition to everything else that you're, you're buying, 
you know, you're going to make the choices you think are best. You know, it's, it's no fault. Uh, it's just sort of uh, inherent in the system. You know, getting back to the story itself, I know some writers, they just follow it organically to see where the characters go. And for some of them, the character dictates what happens because they've really fleshed out the backstory. Uh, so that's the, way they, that's the way they operate. Others, they have an endpoint in mind, and it's how they get there that may change. How, how do you write and lay things out, you and Jenna? Do you have an endpoint in mind where it's going to end up and then fill it in between and see where it goes? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, the way I write, um, I can't start writing until I know how it ends. Um, because really, you know, um, you got to know what kind of cake you're making before mm -hmm. you can put in the ingredients. So like I don't want to I don't I'm not going to just start throwing ingredients into a you know into a bowl and cook it and see what I end up with you know if I want a chocolate cake I'm gonna I, I know what I need to make that chocolate cake so uh, uh you know I start with the premise and then I decide you know where I want to end up and then you know the what's fluid is how you get there you know like there's certain obviously benchmarks you want to reach. But things can change. Characters can become more interesting to you. Um, you know, circumstances could change. Uh, maybe you know, in month one you thought this was the way to do it, and then month three when you get there you're like, no, I got a better way to do it. So you know, there, there's definitely a degree of uh, fluidity to it. But for me, I need to know how it ends before I can begin. And what have you heard directly from fans? People who read it uh, really like it. You know, I think I think. You know, most often we hear that it's very, you know, it feels very real, that they feel like real people doing real things, which I think is uh, uh, pretty high praise. Um, it, it's the type of praise that, that I want to get. I want people to feel like, you know, our characters aren't just, you know, moving plot points, you know, from mm -hmm. point to point B. Um, you know, I want them to feel like people. And uh, so... You know, no one's no one's complained that there's not a lot of gore, which is good. I think people are <laughs> investing in the story. Um, so you know, I mean, and then you know, I mostly you hear you hear when you go to conventions is when you hear the most uh, uh, sort of uh, you know comments on it. And so I'll be really interested, you know, uh, at San Diego and at New York Con or whatever the next one I go to, uh, how people are responding to it. Now, are you uh, a big fan of horror movies? I am. I mean, ah. Jen is a huge, huge fan, but I am definitely a fan as well. Ah, well, what are some of your favorites? Um, I think Halloween is probably my overall favorite because it scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. Mm. I mean, so thoroughly. Um, Halloween and The Exorcist uh, just really, really scared me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the first time I saw The Exorcist, I, I couldn't sleep that night. <laughs> yeah. That was frightening. <laughs> pretty crazy. Um, you know... Alien, Alien is a horror movie. I know it's sci-fi, but yeah. Alien is definitely a horror movie. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to like pinpoint one. Uh, I'm not as big. Jen's a bigger fan of of say Friday the Thirteenth than I am. Uh, she loves Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I really like I really like uh, that as well. I think Leatherface is awesome. <laughs> um, when I was younger, I watched a lot of like Hellraiser and and stuff like that. Uh, Probably in the last ten or twenty, even twenty years, I don't think I've been uh, that drawn to Hellraiser or even um, Freddy Krueger. But when I was a teenager, I, I liked those movies a lot. And have you dug into any of the classics that go back even further? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I love the Universal stuff. I'm a big fan of that. So different. Um, I would have to say that uh, the creature, um, Black Lagoon, is probably my favorite. Uh, and I think it has more to do with the way he looks. Because when you watch those old, you know, Universal monsters, the movies aren't really scary. I mean, they're gothic and, you know, there's an element of creepiness to it. But they're really, you know, they're not scary, not to, you know, not to a contemporary audience. Um, I guess they're horrifying more than they are scary. A Psycho probably is my all-time favorite, though, I think. Uh, if I had to pick one, I'd probably pick Psycho. Mm-hmm. Yeah, horror movies have really changed a lot um, over the decades. I mean, when you look at how it would be a creature, that would be something frightening to the atomic terror of the atomic age and aliens. Sure. And what, what do you think is the next evolution of horror? Where will it be going after the 2010s? What will be the thing that will frighten people in the future? I don't know. I mean, I guess you'd have to look at what is the sort of political climate. You know, what are people worried about? You know, like, are, are people really worried about homeland security? I mean, I think that's a bit of a, an apparition. But, um, you know, if, mm-hmm. if, that, if that's what the pulse of the nation is, and, and it might be sort of uh, hand fed by the political people in power, then maybe invasion movies uh, will be, you know, uh, alien invasion type movies and you know people attacking you know uh your town or your home you know the blob maybe those types of movies will will have a resurgence so what else are you working on right now i mean outside of uh, cannibal um i'm still working on sons of the devil um i'm not doing any other comic work because um let's see in august i started uh the uh, the universal writers program at Universal Pictures, uh, so it's a it's a fellowship. It's a paid fellowship for a year, and we we write two scripts. Um, and really, it's about you know sort of uh, exposing our voices to Universal in hopes of you know working for them. Um, the first script I'm I'm writing, we had a prompt, so it's like this action adventure. And the second one, which I'll be starting probably in two weeks time um it's going to be based on uh, an existing ip and i I don't know what they're going to approve we had to give like a big old list um but uh, it's been really great it's been really fun um everyone's been very transparent and sort of kind and and open to us so it's been great so you you've cleared the deck for that for the foreseeable future yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there there was a degree of like, you know, DC Comics is Warner Brothers and, and Universal's Universal. So um, I, I pretty much cleared the decks. But concentrate you, on that. you did do some work on uh, Injustice Gods Among Us. Yeah, DC. I mean, I did. I did uh, let's see. I, I probably did 40, 40 plus issues of Injustice. That's a great series. I just started digging into it and got a couple of years through. And what's cool about it is the characters, you know, Batman, Superman, they do the things you've always wanted them to do. And they, you know, not always being the Boy Scouts, like, oh, my God, he did that? Well, I got to tell you, a lot of it is a testament to, to Tom Taylor, who did the first two and a half years. And then mm. I did the second two and a half years. And then there was a spinoff series that uh, I started and Chris Sabella finished. And now Tom is doing... Uh, Injustice 2. Um, people love that series. Um, it, you know, if they didn't, it would have been canceled a long time ago. You know what I mean? Like, like that series can go on and on. And I think one of the reasons why is you have a whole universe uh, of continuity, and all the con- and it matters. So people who die in this in this reality stay dead. Um, 
so I think there's there's a degree of um, I don't know like finiteness to it that that fans respond to you know when you know, Green Arrow dies he dies you know when when uh, there's nobody going to come back in some crazy you know comic book way that you know unfortunately in comics that happens a lot you know like you know Wolverine's not staying dead. <laughs> Yeah, no, fans are, are passionate about that, you know, that like it doesn't tie into the overall universe. And again, you know, I think a lot of fans are getting kind of irritated with dead doesn't mean dead. They're going to right. come back. And it's, you know, they make money off the property, of course. Now, at least with creator-owned stuff, you can do whatever you want. It's your right. property. And that, that makes the stories more exciting because anything could happen. No one's safe. That's true. And, but that's what people – that's how people feel about injustice, that no one is safe, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, the, the characters who are in the game, you knew they're not going to die. But, but outside of the guys who are in the game, you know, it's fair game on anybody. And, you know, Tom killed a lot of people, and I, I killed my fair share as well. <laughs> it really freshened up the property. Even though it's in its own universe, you know, it really does bring more excitement to it, knowing that anything could happen. Because those of us that have been with the books for a while, we see it go through cycles. Because um, right. it used to be that someone would, like, Kids would be on books for like you know, three, four years, and they move on to something else, and there'd be a new audience. Nowadays, you know, over the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, people have been just sticking with it and growing up with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult, uh, you know, when you have a, you know, such a technologically savvy and dependent youth, you know, like uh, attention spans are shorter, uh, you know, things to get your attention are greater. There's so many more ways to spend your time that, you know, it's unfortunate that comics don't do better. Uh, I don't know if there's a fix for that, but uh, I do think that when you do have a series like Injustice where um, things happen and they stay happened, um, especially when you're allowed to continue, like, like there's, if you think about it, there's probably, let's see, there's got to be 10 to 12 um, trades worth of Injustice. Mm-hmm. Like that's a lot of material. And so it, it has become its own universe, you know, like it's sort of broken past the Elseworlds because there's so much of it that it's its own world. And that's you know, one of the things about comics, too, compared to other media, but be it digital or print, you can take your time reading that story. You're not on a certain pace. Right. It's like with television and movies, they move at a certain clip. You can freeze it. You can stop. You can back up. But that is the that is the pace of the story. And the more I mean, with the series that they're running now, the longer running miniseries like um well even like legion you you have several episodes to tell your story versus just trying like a movie to do it two hours you can really flesh things out and slow down the pacing of the plot and develop the characters more but with the comics you can really take your time and as a reader you have complete control over how much time you spend on the book so you can you can really absorb the material there take time to appreciate the art take time to go back and reread things if you miss something the first time so that's something I, it's it's kind of a nice way to slow down a bit in a very frantic and hectic society with information coming from all sides and so many choices. It's nice to have that, uh, either digitally or print, uh, oh, floppy or or trade, just to have that time. It's a good it's a good time to to take a deep breath, slow down, and lose yourself in another world. Yeah, I mean honestly, and, and I think I think comic fans and comic readers can uh, you know stand to remind themselves. Um, how good the medium can be and um, how they can take their time and really try to enjoy it. Because, you know, my criticism with some of the way 
uh, fans react is that you know they're quick to say, "Oh, that story didn't matter because there's not some great pivot point in the <laughs> in the comic universe." Mm-hmm. And my response is always, "Well, no story matters. It's all pictures <laughs> and words on a page." Right, right. It's and a story. So <laughs> if you're just reading to see what the next big thing that happens, then you're cheating yourself the opportunity to enjoy something. You know, like Superman can't die in every issue. You know, Lois Lane right. can't die in every <laughs> issue. Uh, and then when that happens, you get mad because, well, oh, I've seen Superman die already. Well, it's stop waiting for him to die and just enjoy the stories as they come, you know? Like, I, I think I think there is a certain sense of, you know, momentum, uh, you know, that's partially driven by this, you know, big, oh, event uh driven you know comics so it's like well we know that you know super duper mega wars is happening so i gotta read everything that leads to super duper mega wars and if it doesn't lead to super duper mega wars then it's not worth my time because nothing happened it doesn't matter you know Hmm. and it's like you know look look at why do you read comics why do you read comics if you read comics to have fun then then give those other stories a chance because Nobody is trying to make bad comics that don't matter. They just matter in different ways. Yeah, I mean, if you're, it is funny because it's kind of a catch twenty two. You know, fans get tired of the big crossover events, but yet sometimes they say, "Well, when's something big going to happen? That's going to matter," and it all matters um, as a story. It's all it's all going somewhere, uh, you know. But it doesn't have to be a big event, and the big events can backfire because if you feel that you have to buy everything, you don't want to miss anything. And then you do, and you look at your bank account and go, wow, I spent all that. Right. And you get resentful. But if it doesn't pay off the way you want it to pay off. <laughs> right. That, that, that's, that's a whole other issue with any kind of fandom, you know, whether it's a Star Wars fan, Star Trek, you know, Doctor Who, you know, Marvel Universe, you know, DC Universe. People have, have their version of what these characters mean. And so a lot of times they project where a story should go. And when it doesn't, they get upset. The best stories I read go someplace I did not expect. They completely throw me off guard, just like comedy. I really laugh at something when I did not see that coming. And someone has a twist of phrase that just cracks me up because I'd never heard it put that way before. Same thing with a good comic book. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, I think, you know, it's, and, you know, it sounds like I'm I'm trashing fans, but really all all I'm saying is that people should open themselves up to, to really try and enjoy the medium because I feel like, you know, they're spending their hard-earned money. You know, you might as well try and enjoy the ride, you know. Well, you have to take a chance with um, other books. I mean, when I was younger, I would just read certain books. It was Marvel. That's all I read. I very rarely read anything else. You know, unless I got frustrated with Marvel uh, during the crazy cover uh, of the 90s when books got, you know, they would, every little gimmick. And I was like, I'm walking away now. I've had enough. I'm going to go over to DC because uh, I got tired of that. But once you read other books, it opens your minds up to different kinds of stories. They don't have to be superhero stories. They don't have to be horror stories. They don't have to. I mean, what people do more now, which I think is great for the industry, is that they're following, in some cases, the writer and or artist, rather than just following a particular character, because they want to try different things. And right. what, what I like about all the creator-owned stuff is that there's always something new. Um, so there's more opportunity now to read different kinds of stories if you're just willing to give it a chance, if you're not going in and buying the same old, same old. I like it because it keeps things fresh. It's always oh, something and, – and it keeps it fresh, I'm sure, for you too, having a chance to do different things rather than just stick with the same character all the time. 
Yeah, well, I think I think you know, there's there's uh, there's good and bad, right? Um, when you're writing creator-owned comics, and you know you're the sort of arbitrator of what happens and what doesn't happen, you know if people don't like it, it's your fault, right? So it's it's mm-hmm. definitely democratic in that way, and if people love it, you know, hey, you're responsible for that. Um, when you write, you know, uh, Marvel D- and DC and licensed characters. You know, the box that you play in is much, you know, more constricted. There's rules, you know, there's, you know, let's say there's four or five bat books, you know, and one bat book is sort of taking the lead in the universe. You know, you can't, you know, you can't do it. Everyone can't do a Joker story in every issue of their bat book because, you know, oh, we're saving him for this. So, like, there's all these rules that you have to uh, sort of operate in. But then by the same token, you're writing Batman. So that's awesome. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So yeah, like but, there's good, there's good and bad in all of it. Right. There's a little give and take. If you're working for someone else, you do have to stay within certain boundaries with that of that character. Um, right. What are you reading right now uh, in comics and in books? Things that you would recommend people should check out. Really, the only book that uh, that I've had the time to read is Southern Bastards. Uh, okay. I really like that a lot. Um, uh, Hadrian's Wall, also my my friend Kyle's book. It's mm-hmm. a mini series, but uh, it's really good. Um. You know, I mean, I've been really busy. You know how you have like that stack of books that you're supposed to read? Oh, yeah. It gets taller and taller. That's kind of where I'm at, you know. Um, I, I think I tend to, you know, when I want entertainment, I go to the movies uh, because I can, you know, just receive information and, you know, uh, uh, it's much less intensive, especially especially when you're when you're reading and writing all day long. I do do like a lot of podcasts and, and audio books also. Oh, okay. Those are um, uh, those are always fun, you know. Yeah, I, I do uh, queue up a bunch of podcasts and listen to them while I'm working. If it's not something that, like, if I'm not writing um, and I'm just doing some kind of mindless work, either around the house or if I'm number crunching at work, I'll have some some podcasts in the background, which I think is great. And I, th- I I wish more people would listen to podcasts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> you can um, learn something, and that's the great thing about it. You can't. You can't be everywhere and know everything, but if you find a good show, it can keep you up to date on things, and you can learn a few things. Yeah, for sure. And you know, Audible books are great too. Um, right now, I'm listening to Down and Dirty Pictures, uh, which is uh, sort of uh, it's about the the Weinstein, uh, Miramax, Sundance era of the of the 80s and 90s in film. It's it's a sequel to it's kind of a sequel to Easy Riders. And Raging Bulls, which was a story, which was a you know biography, or about the you know late '60s and '70s auteurs, and how they came up, and how the sort of how that turned into the blockbuster era. And uh, any movies you've caught lately that you really uh, liked? Uh... Uh, Get Out was awesome. Uh, it just came out on on Friday. It's um, the only name actor that you'd recognize is Allison Williams from Girls, okay. but it's Jordan Peele wrote and directed it. You know, from Key and Peele. Okay, yeah. So he wrote a horror film uh, and directed it, and it's pretty good. It's more psychological thriller type, uh, but it's a really good movie. I definitely recommend that. I'm making a note now. <laughs> I don't get out as often as I liked the movies, but you know, I, I do like to have that experience of being in the theater every once in a while. I don't always want to be at home watching something. You know, yeah. it's still fun to get out there. On, on iTunes, a couple other horrors. Um, don't breathe. I thought was really good. Split. I thought it was was okay. I liked the first act, but I think it kind of falls apart. I know Wolverine's coming out soon, so I'll, I'll probably check that out. I usually get the most of the 
quote superhero movies. Not all of them, though. I mean, I haven't, I have not seen Suicide Squad. Um, don't know what I'm going to either. Um, I think the only the only Marvel DC movie that I haven't seen in the theater um, is Doctor Strange. I saw Doctor Strange, and uh, what I liked about it so much was they really went into his origin far more than one page in the comics. So, yeah, it was, it was, they brought a lot more to the character. You could see more of the tragedy of what happened to him and how crushed he is by it all. So, uh, I liked it. It was, it was a really good film. It's, it surprised me how, how good it was. Um, looking forward to a sequel or, or how he fits into other movies. The MCU, (laughs) the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, yeah, I think King Kong and and Logan are are the two movies I'm excited about. Oh yeah. King Kong looks great. Yeah. There's a new trailer that shows so much action. Like he kicks so much ass in this new trailer. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like it's awesome. Yeah, no, it looks cool. Uh, I have a friend who, you know, uh, who works at Legendary who said it was really good. And said it do- it does uh, you know, it does it's as good as advertised, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So do you have any uh, con appearances planned coming up now that we're getting into con season? Like the only two that I know for sure uh, are New York and San Diego. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you not do a lot of cons? Do you just have too much on your plate to do that? I mean, I, I did. I mean, there was like two or three years where I was at probably ten, you know, ten cons a year or something. But it's just, it's tough because the, when you go to a con, then basically, like for three to four days, your life stops. Yeah. And you, your work. You know, it doesn't move on without you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It stays there. And then when you get back, you have to play catch-up. And I think I just did that for a number of years, and uh, it just get hard, got harder and harder to keep doing it. I, I mean, I love conventions. I love meeting people. People are so, you know, they're really nice and enthusiastic. And even, you know, when they don't like your stuff, uh, they're interesting to talk to. And and fairly respectful, I take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't really, you know, had any... Um, horror stories i mean i think there was one time when uh somebody saw me doing a like a commission or a sketch for somebody and said i could do better <laughs> like okay thanks <laughs> and then he came back and he's like hey can you draw me something and i was like no nah, you draw it <laughs> i was like you're gonna insult me and then ask me to draw for you interesting yeah <laughs> amazing <laughs> those are very 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 few and far between yeah it is nice to get out there and I'm sure meet the public and have a chance to get some direct feedback and know that, you know, while you're toiling away in your room working on a book, that there are those out there who appreciate it, not just from the sales numbers, but actually getting the direct feedback. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, the Internet sort of uh, plays towards the negative, you know, because yes. negative gets noticed. Mm-hmm. Uh, real life, you know, people are, are much nicer uh, and enthusiastic. That's one thing I miss about letter pages. People don't write letters as much anymore, although they do publish emails in letter pages. But I wish more of that was done, and I think they would probably be uh, better communications because people have the time to think about what they're writing versus just firing out a tweet or, pu- or throwing something up on Facebook. It's a little just too easy to, to knee-jerk react and just fire something out. Oh, that's – yeah, that's very true. But that's – you know, look at our president. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's so sad, so disappointing. No, no filter there, huh? No, no, and and to me, that's like a national security issue. I mean, it's really a problem. For sure, for sure. 
So how can fans reach you if they want to give you some feedback? Um, I'm, I'm on social media. You can uh, reach uh, me on Facebook or on Twitter. Uh, Brian Booch, B-R-I-A-N-B-O-O-C-H. It's like phonetically. And Cannibal to Trade is out on March 8th, which will be next Wednesday. As always, with Image, it's $9.99 to jump in with the first trade. So, you know, you, yes, can't, sir. you can't lose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Hope you hope you anyone who tries it, uh, who hasn't read it, likes it. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. And that was my interview with writer Brian Bucciolato. Now up next is my interview with the artist on the series, Cannibal, Mateus Baguera, now on Creator Talks. I was just talking to uh, Brian last night, Brian Bucciolato, about the Mm -hmm. book Cannibal coming out next week on Wednesday, March 8th. You are the artist on the title. And uh, he was telling me that you're doing all of this work based on photo references um, of the Florida Everglades. Well, uh, specifically for the Everglades and, and Florida, of course, I, I, I try to use a lot of photo reference to, to understand how the, the flora and the fauna, you know, uh, the animals and the plants and, and you know, it, it wouldn't be nice to just make things up. Of course, I, I end up doing that a lot, <laughs> uh, even if I don't want to, but uh, I, I try to make it, you know, to make it to look as, as natural as possible and... and of course, uh, not not trying to follow uh, a perfect look. You know, it, it's not like a, um, I'm trying to 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 make um, you know a, a very a, a true uh, naturalistic look for it. Um, but I use another you know another set of references like uh, real life experiences because I I love to do like uh, trekking and going to to the nature and um, jungles and places. And I live in, you know, in Uruguay, which is a small, um, a small country, but uh, geographically and, you know, uh, also the weather, it's, it's very like Florida. It looks a lot like it. Um, it's a very humid place and there's lots of jungles and some swamps and that kind of stuff. And I know those places. I've been there and, and taken lots of photographs and it looks a lot like it. So, uh, I don't know. I used uh, real-life experiences. I, I do not know Florida. i never been to Florida, but I, I would love to, you know, to see the, the place and the people and, and the architecture, the towns, the roads, and the swamps um, by, by myself. I, I mean, I would love to. No, no, you're doing an excellent job. I've been to Florida uh, in the Everglades area, and uh, you do a great likeness of it. And uh, especially for a book that has a, a horror theme to it, uh, it really does evoke that creepiness and kind of underlying horror of the book. So it, you do a wonderful job of not only portraying the environment, but also having that sinister element that's underneath of everything in the book. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, f- forests and jungles and swamps and that kind of uh, stuff um, help help you a lot in creating um, that kind of creepy atmosphere. And, and you know, um, the jungle is now uh, for us, I mean, for, for people, especially city people, <laughs> you know, um, forests and swamps and jungles are kind of scary places. It's not... It's nice to see it on documentaries and stuff, but if you're not familiarized with uh, with nature, uh, it's kind of um, very dangerous 
place and difficult to understand and to navigate, you know. If you've ever been lost in nature, whether it's a jungle or a swamp or just, you know, a, 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 you know, a cornfield or whatever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you feel pretty scared. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah, especially if it's uh, if it's uh, at night and you don't have a light and you just have to use, you know, moonlight or or whatever to to guide yourself out of um, a jungle or a forest. It's very very creepy and scary at a very primal level. You know, it's it's a, a bit of an irrational thing, and I'm trying to convey some of that uh, sort of irrational response and and fear response. From the readers by by using confusing and, and dark forests and swamps. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's the unknown that is so frightening. What goes through your own mind? What lurks around the corner? What's behind that tree? What's that shadow over there? That's what yeah. really gets, gets to people. Gets under their skin. There, yeah, I I read about it, and apparently there are you know scientific studies, and it's a real thing that when you're in a forest or whatever, even if you're uh, if you know where you're going and you have a safety, the fact that you are looking at trees, many, many trees uh, that block you, uh, you know, the sight of the horizon or, or whatever, uh, it is instantly causes your mind to go into a subtle, like, um, you know, quiet tension mode. Like you're not uh, completely easy with that situation. Mm-hmm. And if you explore, you know, cultures and stuff, forests and jungles are never a place of relaxation or contemplation of nature, you know, like Tolkien and stuff. It's more like there are always places that cause um, discomfort and um, distrust. Like, like it's, it's not a naturally pleasing place. And I think um, people still have that in their minds. And I'm trying to put a little of, of that basic horror and uneasiness in, in the art. It's, yeah. not, it's not easy, but I'm trying. <laughs> no, you're doing an excellent job. And just a little segue, I thought I'd share with you a story of my own when I was going through the woods. I was on a, a hiking trip in uh, Shenandoah. Uh, down in Virginia, I mean, there's animals in the woods and everything. And I was just hiking through the woods on a hiking path. And uh, my wife was several yards behind me. And I was just kind of stopping for a second to look around. And I looked to my right and there was a bear within I don't know, like 20 yards. Okay. And I was like, oh, hello. And what bothered me was he saw me before I saw him. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I said, bear. My wife said, what do I do? I said, just don't move. And the bear just walked away. And much further off in the distance is the most frightening thing, the cubs, which you don't want to oh, get between man. the mother bear and the cubs. So, yes, <laughs> from personal experience, even when you're in, yeah. you know, it's a state park or a national park and you think, oh, everything's fine and safe. No, you're in the wilderness. You're in someone else's territory now. You got you to gotta keep your eyes open. Be aware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, a couple of months ago, something similar happened to me, but there weren't any bears or stuff. It was just, um, you know, the night coming. Mm-hmm. I was coming down from um, a little mountain, uh, a mountain range, um, which had, you know, uh, um, a path that was set there for, for tourists and trekkers and stuff. And, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. I was just coming down with, with some friends from, from the top of that mountain. 
And we have been told, uh, you know, to avoid the night, to to not do the the descent too late, as to avoid, you know, that there is no light and, and stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, we were supposed to be like there at 6 p.m. like that, and it, it got a, a little a little late for us. We 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 didn't do it as fast as we thought. And the, the moment the sun started to, to go down and light started to, to dim and, uh, you know, a forest gets incredibly dark. You, you, don't, you don't even know if you're walking the same path you, you were taking when you were going up, you know. Then you're, even if it's the same road you're taking, it looks completely different uh, at night without any light and tall trees and stuff. And, uh, you know, it's incredibly creepy and scary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even if you know you're going out, if you follow that path, uh, the place doesn't look the same anymore and you don't see easily uh, unless you have a flashlight or something like that, you know, and it's, it's very scary. Yeah, without those city lights, when you're out in nature and the sun goes down and all you have is the moon and the stars, it gets really dark. You don't realize until you get out away from the big cities how dark it gets without all that light. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been out west um, in Death Valley, and at night I could look up and actually see the Milky Way, which I do not see on the east coast of the U.S. I have to be oh, far, yeah, it's, far it's away from cities. Sight. Oh, it's gorgeous, but I've only seen it when I go out west. <laughs> and I the, the, darkest I've, the darkest I've been in nature was so dark that um, – you know, the world looked the same if you were closing your eyes or having them open, you know, oh, wow. exactly the same. You, you didn't see any difference, not, not the 1% of light. Uh-huh. Uh, that was really, really, really dark. And we were very far away from, you know, <laughs> from uh, <laughs> civilization and stuff. And it's awesome. If you're a city person like me and you, <laughs> you're, you're probably never been uh, in that situation before. Right. Let me ask you, um, do you get a chance to travel out of country and whether you do or not, when you're out and about, especially in nature, do you take with you a sketch pad to to jot some things down, do a few sketches for reference? Well, um, I don't do that very often because when I do these trips, uh, it's usually vacation for me and I don't like to draw anything at all, (laughs) not even notes from a sketch pad, but uh, I, I look at things very closely and I use my my memory uh, just as, as a reference. I, I have very good visual memory and uh, it's enough. It's enough for me. Yeah. Or I take pictures in very, very specific cases. If I'm looking at something, I, I don't know <laughs> what it is. Mm-hmm. I just take a picture with my phone or whatever and then I ask for, for <laughs> explanations. Right. No, I understand. You need the break. It's your vacation. You want to step away, recharge. You know, and then you can go back to your yeah. work and be all the better. And let me ask you, what is a typical work day for you? Like, how do you go about setting up everything you're going to work on? And do you have a certain um, schedule that you follow that you set for yourself to make sure that you're on well, task? Or how does that work? It depends on, on the amount of work I have to do. Like right now, this February was has been really complicated for me because I'm doing two books at the same time. And which means I'm working double shift every mm. day. Monday to Sunday, and um, but ordinarily I I would just wake up early in the morning and start working right away until maybe late noon, like when the sun goes down. 
I just uh, I don't have a fixed um, schedule to work daily, but the only thing I don't like is working by night. Mm. I mean, when the sun goes down, I stop working. That's okay. it. <laughs> That's my usual rule. <laughs> I don't have any problem in waking up like six six a.m. and start working right away. It's not a problem for for me. I I like the sun and and the sunlight is is a good um, stimulator for me. Do you ever get on a roll with something and you're like, oh, I, I can't stop right now. Like I'm right in the middle of this. I just want to keep going until I get this one panel done or this one figure done. You ever have that happen or you just say, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. If it's uh, just one panel or maybe two, I'll, 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 I'll keep working until it's done. But I, I wouldn't just pull out like, I know, three, four or five more hours that I would ordinarily do just because I'm fixed. Um, I've been fixed, but um, at that point, I just put the things away. If I'm, I'm really tired, and I, I tell myself to stop. <laughs> well, you know, that way you can do your best work. You know, you're, you're rejuvenated the next day. you got a long week. So, you know, if yeah. you push yourself too hard early, if things happen, you get burned out, you get sick. So, yeah, I mean, it's good to, uh, to have yeah, that downtime. Balance. I, I think that's that's the point. I mean, um, I think that the best artists and creators are are the ones who don't give a fuck about anything and just go on working passionately without thinking in, in anything at all. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that's the case with most of the creators I, I admire from from always. Uh, but in my case, I do it because. Um, uh, it's a health thing, you know. It's it's a better way um, to uh, to live through the life of a freelancer. You have to stop at some point and tell yourself, okay, eight or eight or nine hours of work sitting down is enough. You mm -hmm. know, you don't need more than that. Uh, uh, creating art is very important, but you are very important too. You know, you should do some sports, get some air. Uh, do things, uh, you know, cooking, walking, doing stuff. Right. It's important too. You want to do this for a long time and you want to live for a long time. So you got to take care of yourself. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's horrible to try to work if you, you're having tendonitis on your hands or mm, yeah. if your back hurts or your neck hurts or whatever. You know, the, those are the consequences of not moving for <laughs> being sitting down for, for hours. Oh, yeah. Hey, tell me about your training as an artist. When did you start formally? I'm sure you've probably drawn since you could pick up a pencil, but when did you begin and think, okay, I'm going to be an artist, but did you get actual training or you a lot, most of it self-taught? Did you have a mentor? Um, no, I, I was sent to a small workshop, comics and, you know, uh, a small workshop that was for teenagers. Uh, mm -hmm. It wasn't even a school. It was just like, uh, I know... Uh, a workshop that you go and art classes are taught uh, at different times of the day. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's painting, sometimes it's, I don't know, it's like an, a small art school. And I went there when I was maybe 16 or 17 and I had never drawn, but uh, by that time, anything else that any other kid would have, would have drawn. I mean, I, I wasn't uh, a child artist at all. And I went there uh, forced by my parents who wanted me to do something with my life. Uh -huh. And um, I, uh, I didn't really care. But when I was there and I was looking at, you know, the anatomy books and the basic stuff that you get taught when you're learning to draw, I fell in love with it. And But I, I didn't really 
thought of myself as a possible artist in real life until maybe 20 or 22 years old because I studied um, a career, another career, <laughs> which is not art. And when I finished that and had my title, then I said, okay, now I have a title. I, I don't want to use it for anything else. <laughs> and um, I'm going to be an artist. What was your other career? Uh, it's, a, it's, it's not a PhD. It's, you know, the, um, uh, the previous grade. I don't know how it's called. You oh, know, a master's? The, the a master's? Yeah, a master's okay. in, liter in literature. Oh, excellent. Very good. That's what I studied because I really love to to read and box and stuff. But um, but I never used it. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. I I finished my studies twelve years ago, almost. Yeah, twelve years ago, and um, I have never used my title <laughs> for anything <laughs> else. But it was good learning, you know. It helped me uh, mature my my thoughts and my mind. And who were and who are some of your influences as an artist? Well, you know, they are, you know, I'm sure you get this answer all the time, but there are too many to count. Mm -hmm. uh, I had some favorites amongst them, like Herjay, the, you know, the creator of Tintin. Yes. Because of his uh, very innovative and, and brilliant storytelling abilities. And also Moebius, you know, Jean Giraud. Yes. The, mm -hmm. You know, the ultra famous. French artist because of his brilliance as an artist uh, in every level. Uh, of course, I love Frank Miller. Um, I love Bill Sinkovich because because he's a different kind of artist um, in this world. And um, I don't know. Uh, I love um, manga from the 80s. You know, action manga, science fiction manga. Um, European comics are a huge influence in me, and um, I don't know those those should be like the the, the clear yeah. and most evident influences. What was your first work, first comic work that you did? The first comic book that I did was a very small story that I wrote myself, which is which was the first and the last time I've, I've ever done that because uh, I, I don't write. I don't have stories in my mind, which okay. is incredible. <laughs> that I, I think that the, the majority of, of uh, comic book artists like want to write sometime in their lives. I don't. <laughs> I am I'm completely, um, completely devoted to art. Uh, I just care about the art. And I do my own narration through the drawings. But writing is something that, I don't know, uh, it's not part of me. But I had to draw as part of this uh, art school that I, that I went to. Uh, as a teenager, we had to write a small story, like a seven or eight page story. And I did one about uh, werewolf, like a very teenager stuff uh, thing. And... Um, I did that, and I did the art, obviously, and that was it. <laughs> it was just like a practice. And back then, it was my first comic ever, like uh, because I, I had been being trained in, in drawing, academic drawing and stuff, but never actually did a comic. And I found it extremely hard to do. You know, that was my first experience with comics. I had never done one before. And just doing the, the you know, the the outer lines of the panels with <laughs> with a ruler was hard enough for me like i was saying no way there, there can be can there be people doing this for a living <laughs> every day it's way too hard 
and I still think there is uh, it is. I think drawing comics is is extremely difficult, but you get used to it. It's like that. Now later you began uh, doing art at Boom Studios um, on Sons of Anarchy and Sleepy Hollow. How did you uh, first start working at Boom? Uh, I was contacted directly by Daphne Plevin, which is uh, an editor there. Um, uh, they contacted me directly with the offer for for these jobs, and they were my my first, uh, you know, U.S. publishing um, gigs and and works. I did some short stories for Sleepy Hollow, and then immediately started with Sons of Anarchy, mm-hmm. and uh, the, those two were edited by the same person, so. Um, it was kind of um, uh, let's let's see how it works, how how we go, how along, and I s- immediately started working. Yeah, it was great. You know, Boom is a um, is a marvelous, a uh, great publisher, especially because of the editorial teams, which are very open, very young, and and very, you know, great to work with. And um, you also worked at uh, Vertigo with Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque on American Vampire, too. Yeah, um, we know uh, Raphael and I are friends from uh, many years now. Um, I mean, I admire his work and I think he likes mine, too. And uh, he invited me to to draw a full episode of American Vampire. which was a, um, a different sort of chapter because they, it had illustration uh, as well as comic book pages, and it was very fun to do. It was a great job, and Scott's uh, script was awesome, as, as usual, and I had lots of fun with that. It was my first um, DC job. And uh, one other that I wanted to bring up, too, was uh, Neil Gaiman's uh, Odd and the Frost Giants. You also illustrated that as well i believe yeah that was great because that was um you know a spanish edition mm-hmm. a spanish language edition of the book which i i'm not sure if if it's a first spanish edition or, or a second edition but i was contacted to do the illustrations and you know neil's team was okay with it they saw my art and and i did the illustrations for that uh, also a great book, you know. Uh, Neil's writing is amazing. So there are two editions of the book, at least, an English and a Spanish? Because I, I noticed on another edition there was a different uh, yes, artist's yes. name. Okay. Um, okay. In There are maybe like uh, three or four different uh, English editions illustrated by different people. But in Spanish, I think um, it's my version, and I, I don't know if, if it's any other one, but... Um, as far as I know. So that's that's interesting. So now you worked on Sons of Anarchy and Ed Brisson was writing that one. He's going to actually be writing um, Iron Fist coming up for Marvel soon. Yeah, I know. And uh, Mike Johnson was working on Sleepy Hollow with you. And you had Neil Gaiman and you had Scott Snyder. So with all of those writers, uh, was there a difference in their approach to how they communicated with you, what they wanted to see on the page? Um, as far as, as the script concer- are concerned, um, the format and how they are written are very similar. You know, um, okay. I guess uh, writers also have to to um, get accustomed to to you know the the usual rules of comic book writing. So 
uh, no weird Alan Moore stuff uh, without any panel separation. So um, in that sense, at least the structure is very similar in every case. And then the writing, of course, is very different and the styles and ideas are very different. Some, some scripts are more loaded with visual ideas and others are, are more subtle about it, more poetic, so to say. But um, uh, I don't know. To me, they are all great, and I have enjoyed a lot working with, with you know, someone else's uh, texts. As I told you before, uh, as I am not a writer myself, I enjoy a lot to to see what other people have have written and try to imagine how to put images into that. And as you worked for all of those different writers. Have you learned things along the way? Has anything changed in the way you approach your work since you first began interpreting someone else's writing to today? Oh, yes, of course. Um, you're learning all, all the time, you know? You're learning how, how characters act, how things are supposed to, to unravel in a page and in a book and in a series of books. Um, I have learned a lot about narration, about dialogue, about, about, about a lot of things. And also, not just the writers and the scripts, but also the editorial feedback has been very important to me because I, I have been told very, very interesting ideas and concepts about but what comics are uh, that I never really ever thought of before. And... Um, like uh, one editor told me, I don't exactly remember who because it was many years ago, but someone told me that a comic book panel is like a window to a whole new world for the reader. So it shouldn't be boring. It shouldn't be obvious and it shouldn't be, uh, you know, the, the four corners of a panel shouldn't be a limit, but uh, an enabling, an enabling um, kind of... Uh, I don't know, gateway to a more interesting world, not just uh, limitation of your ideas and your capacities. But uh, that took me a long to understand, a long time to understand. And um, it's what makes art, good art, dif difference itself from obvious art or, uh, you know, not very... Uh, not very stimulating art. Mm -hmm. It's it's that difference, you know. You you have to see comics as uh, not 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 only telling a story, but also showing you a different world and uh, in a very in a complex way, you know. Sometimes complexity uh, and fantasy not necessarily depend upon the amount of elements, complexity, and, and sophistication of the art you're putting in. Sometimes it will all come down to, uh, you know, maybe an expression, maybe some, you know, backgrounds, or maybe just an empty space will be enough to create a, a different sensation in the reader. But um, all along, comics have to be a thrilling experience. That's the most important part of it. Is there a particular medium that you like to work with? Now, obviously, I mean, we see that you're a comic book artist. You sketch with pencil and ink. But is there a particular medium that you like to work with? Well, you know, um, I love traditional art, using paints and stuff. I would love to 
uh, have some time someday to make a personal project, uh, maybe illustration or maybe a personal story if I start writing at some point or maybe asking someone else to write it for me. But I would love to work in a, a bigger format, a larger page and use paints and watercolor and stuff to create, um, you know, a richer richer pieces of work because I love color. I would love to do all the stages of a comic book page. I love everything about it. You know, when doing layouts or doing inks or pencil and colors, I can do all of it. I love all of it. <laughs> I, I don't like any particular point in making the art more than than the others. I, I just love it all. And I would love to, to use different traditional media to create, you know, uh, bigger books like illustrated books or whatever. I would love to do that. Very popular now, too, are those uh, artist edition books where you get to see the full-size art of uh, some of the most famous comic books ever published. You can actually see all the notes of the artists and everything. So there's, they're becoming very popular as well. Kind of expensive, but if you really like to see the art and the detail and what's behind it, those are out a lot, uh, too, now. Yeah, I love those those books, you know. Uh, they are beautiful and, and very exciting to see it because you kind of see, you know, the... the um, uh, behind the scenes of the how the art was done, and uh, you get to see all the little you know mistakes and corrections, and stuff which are lovely to me. I, I love to see that my most adored artists and most admired artists also were human beings that made mistakes all the time, <laughs> and um, uh, I, I think. Probably artists are the, the most excited people about these books. Uh, it's like, hey, look, it's, it's, uh, it's a book for you. It's a book for artists. Because I, I know fans surely love that too, but I'm probably, I, um, I'm just guessing, but I, I think probably artists love these books more, more than anyone else. You get to learn directly from, from these books. It's like looking at direct lessons from the greats, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I, I have certain uh, sketches I have from cons, and it's kind of neat. Sometimes I'll flip over the sketch, and on the back will be something that the artist started to draw and thought, no, I'm going to try it this way instead. And then what I get is the finished piece on the other side. So that's kind of neat to see where they were starting and how they changed up and did something else. See, yeah. those, those little lines here and there, to me, it doesn't detract from it. Even if it's on the finished product and I see some lines beneath, that's great. I can see where they were going with it. It's neat to see that process. Yeah, it's marvelous because, um, you know, uh, this um, being an artist or, or a freelance worker of any kind, it's a very lonely thing. You know, you, you spend hours and hours and days and months uh, just uh, in the company of yourself and your own working habits and then you you're not exactly sure how the rest of the people do, do their thing you know um, now with the social networks artists usually show what they do and and their processes and different stages of, of their work so it's easier to see you know, like a window to to a colleague, to a colleague's way of working, and that before wasn't really very accessible. And but especially this 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 box and you know like little uh, preparatory previews, you know little uh, pencil work and stuff. It's it's amazing. It's it's very beautiful to see. 
and you know very rich for for the curious reader who wants to see how how it was done yeah the social media is great from being able to get feedback and share things with the fellow creators and your uh, your fans do you get a chance to go to any conventions or meet up with uh, fellow creators yeah um, i've been to conventions mainly here in south america and europe and i want to uh, in 2012, I went to New York Comic Con. Um, I'm not a huge fan of, of you know, cons because uh, they're, they're usually very tiring for me as a spectator or as a, you know, a pro, whatever. But um, uh, I've been there, yeah, I like it. I, I like the fact that, uh, that I can see you know, um, colleagues that I wouldn't normally be able to, to see and to see firsthand what the, the comic book fans are, are, are like, like, <laughs> who are those people, you know? It's very important. It, it gives you an idea of people that, you know, people are not just, uh, uh, you know, social network profile pictures and stuff, but they're real people, how old, they are and where they come from uh, it makes you think about things like look um, these are the fans of uh, you know that guy's work or maybe these other people are your fans <laughs> and um, it's very curious for me I love that you are working on a couple books right now and I I just saw that uh, you have an edition of DC bombshells coming out working with Marguerite Bennett yeah, I I did a small collaboration in Bombshells, and I, I also uh, have done two Supergirl uh, Rebirth issues. In fact, I'm I'm finishing issue my second issue right now, uh, written by Steve Orlando, mm -hmm. and um, it has been a, a really fun experience for me because I don't do superheroes. It was my first time uh, doing people with capes and superpowers flying. I have never done that before. And when they offered me that, like two Supergirl issues, uh, you know, no no bullshit, no doing crazy stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you get the people with the capes. You have to do that <laughs> in a certain way. <laughs> and I thought, oh, uh, could I do this? And they believed that I could. And so I'm I'm doing it right now in my own way. And uh, as far as I know, DC people are, are, are liking it. So uh, I'm really curious about what fans are going to think of it when it, goes, when it goes out. How do you feel about it? Well, it's very, very fun for me. I love it. Uh, I, I never actually thought it would be fun for me because, uh, you know, it's, it's the unknown. If you have never done it before, you don't know what's going to happen when you start trying it. And... It has been really, really fun. You know, I, I connected with a part of me that was maybe uh, on standby, standby mode uh, since my teenage years. Because when, when I was a teenager, of course, I was a huge fan of superheroes, a uh, huge reader of anything that, that was, you know, muscle-bound, uh, you know, guys and, and superpowers, action and no bullshit. But then, uh, you know, I started reading, you know, uh, Gay Man and Morrison and Alan Moore, and I started drifting, drifting away from, from you know, the, the good old teenage years <laughs> read mm -hmm. material. 
And uh, but now um, I am reconnecting with that. I am loving it. So you're working on. Are you going to continue to work on bombshells, or is it just the one issue that's coming out? Um, I believe March first. No, no, it's it's just uh, one issue. Mm -hmm. And then I did a, a small Constantine and Wonder Woman story in a holiday rebirth special from DC. And then I did these two Supergirl issues, and that's it for now, <laughs> at least on on you know the DC shelves. But for now, you're working on Cannibal, and uh, I think issue five is due out in another month or so after the trade comes out, yeah. collecting issues one through four. And how far ahead have you worked on that? Well, I'm, I'm actually sort of doing finishing work on, on the next issues, yeah, especially mm -hmm. issue five, uh, which is done almost. And, um, of course, I'm going to start working immediately on issue six. And as, long, as far as I know... Things are going good. I mean, wind is on our sails, and this story, uh, it's getting, like, really, really strong. There are huge, um, yeah, you know, huge plot, plot points coming on in issue five. And uh, I guess the story is getting, you know, a, a little intense from now on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, where the rest of the story goes. And for those who have missed out on it and want to jump on board, it's a great story. And it's coming out uh, March 8th. Issues 1 through 4 is a trade paperback, $9.99, a fantastic jumping on point and price. So it's definitely a book to check out. And uh, Mateus, before we wrap up, you also have original art for sale on your site. Yeah, I've tried selling some original art, but no luck, <laughs> no luck uh, until now. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm new to all this, and uh, I haven't had a chance to put much effort into it. Uh, I just saw other colleagues doing it, and I said, well, maybe some somebody's gonna <laughs> somebody's gonna be interested in this, but not really. So I'm keeping them to myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, should check it out because you don't do many cons. So there's not a lot of sketches floating around there. So if someone wants a nice piece of art, uh, check out Mateus' site. And definitely, if you can't afford the art, definitely check out the trade paperback and jump on board to Cannibal. Thank you very much, Chris. I hope you enjoyed this double feature episode of Creator Talks. There was only one episode this week of the show, but that has been my plan all along, and that is to post weekly episodes on Thursdays. So I hope this supersized episode holds you over to the next week. And I'll continue to record interviews and line up new guests. Now, some weeks there will be more than two episodes released, and there will be a couple of weeks like that this month. So just look for show announcements on social media, and you can do that by following the show on Facebook at Creator Talks Pod, that's at Creator Talks Pod, and on Twitter at Creator Talks Pod, that's at Creator Talks Pod on Twitter. Also, you can go to my website, creatortalks.com. That is creatortalks.com. There I will have the new episode also posted that week at the top of the homepage. And I will also have a blog about once a week that will tie in some way to the episode that I recorded and produced that week. But the best way to make sure you don't miss an episode is to subscribe through iTunes or you can subscribe through Google Play if you have an Android device. Or if you prefer to use the app Stitcher, you can subscribe to the episode using that app. Or if you're a fan of SoundCloud, it's also available there. So, join me next week where I'll have, I think I want to have two episodes next week if everything goes according to plan. And we have a couple of great guests coming up. One's already in the can, ready to go. 
another one I'll be recording this weekend. So watch for those announcements coming up on Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. I know you have a lot of podcasts to choose from. Heck, there's a lot of content out there to choose from. And I thank you for choosing this one to spend your time with. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.